Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 will be our consideration this morning. And while you're finding this text, to just get our minds thinking in the direction that this text will take us, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming of the Messiah King, fully God, fully man. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the first messianic prophecy in all of the Bible, God promised to send a son of a woman to crush the head of Satan. Messiah would come through Abraham. He would come through Isaac. He would come through Jacob. He would come through Judah. He is the star that would come from Jacob, Numbers 24. He is a redeemer who will stand upon the earth, Job chapter 19. He is the son of God, Psalm 2. He is a descendant of David, Psalm 132, 2 Samuel 7. He would be born a king, Jeremiah 30. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. He would be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49. He would be then betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41 and Isaiah 55. He would be whipped and spat upon, Isaiah 50. He would suffer for the sins of others and be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. He would be crucified. Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12. He would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. He would ascend into heaven. Psalm 68. He will return as a conquering king. Daniel chapter 7, Zechariah 14. And he will restore and regather Israel and establish his kingdom. Hosea chapter 3, Micah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, many, many others. There are literally hundreds more passages, more prophecies, which each see their fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ. Most of them are straightforward. Many are easily seen in their New Testament fulfillments. But one of the most mysterious, one of the most enigmatic prophecies of Christ is found in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I'm giving you this introduction because this prophecy comes to us in our text this morning in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. And in fact, in Matthew's inspired gospel, Matthew states that this prophecy is fulfilled. And I'd like to work our way toward it because it turns out to be very, very important, not just for understanding Christ, but for understanding our own salvation. Now, last time we saw the coming of the wise men, they turned out to be the descendants of Abraham, the physical cousins to the Lord Jesus, the ones who, along with their descendants, will present gifts to Jesus once again in the coming kingdom, the kingdom of Christ on earth. But you recall that after the wise men left, King Herod, the client king, who was essentially hired by Rome to rule the region of Judea, he was an insanely jealous king. He was determined to find Jesus, who was the true king of the Jews, and to murder him. And so our story picks up right after the wise men leave, after having given to baby Jesus immense wealth in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having worshipped him as true believers in the Son of God. Now, for anyone here or anyone listening who might say, why would I care about some 
obscure supposed prophecy about Jesus? Why would they care about this? Well, the answer to that question also helps answer the question, why should I follow Jesus in the first place? Why should I follow Jesus? Well, there's countless glorious answers to that question, but our text this morning gives one answer that is ironclad. It compels the listener to repent of sinful rebellion against God and to see Jesus Christ for who He truly is, the Son of God, who will either be your Savior or He will be your judge. So what's the reason? What's the answer to the question, why should I follow Jesus? What's the answer given in our text? Here's the answer. He is the king of all the kings, divinely protected by God the Father. He is the king of all the kings, divinely protected by God the Father. And that's the theme I want to pick up on, this divine protection. Because this divine protection proves that Jesus is affirmed by God. He's loved by God. He's commissioned by God. He's called by God. He's appointed by God. He's empowered by God. And so this is not something that a person may simply lightly dismiss. This prophecy gives tremendous evidence of the divine protection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd like to show you three instances of the divine protection of Christ. The first instance of divine protection is the main focus of our text. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they that is, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod, in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. What was it that the baby Jesus was being protected from? Verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. We can date this escape to Egypt, this running to Egypt of Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, precisely to the year 4 B.C., That's the most likely year of the birth of Christ and of this event. How do we know this? Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So, Jesus first escaped to Egypt, And then he was brought out of Egypt. How do we know when this happened? Because Herod, we know from history, died in 4 BC. And so we can come pretty close to that date. Now, just in case some of you are saying, wait a minute, BC stands for before Christ. How can Jesus be born four years before Christ? Our dating system is not inspired or perfect. They missed it by four years. It's not a problem. It's not a contradiction. I want you to notice in verse 13... 
The angel doesn't call Jesus Joseph's child, just the child. And the child comes before his mother. Jesus is the central feature here in this narrative. And I want you to notice the timing. When they had departed, it means that the wise men came and most likely that very night, Joseph had his dream. That after they left, they went to bed and that night they had their dream. He had his dream. What did that mean? It meant that now they were set up money-wise to make this journey and to live for however many months it took to stay safe. Can you imagine if Joseph had had that dream the night before the wise men came? But Lord, I don't have any money. I don't have a way to live in Egypt. He had just been given a fortune upon which to live. And Egypt was a logical choice. It would be a natural safe haven for Jews, which is kind of ironic considering the terrible uh, history between Egypt and Israel. But there was a large Jewish community in Egypt now that they lived there for centuries before the birth of Christ. So they wouldn't be alone. They would be among fellow Jews and they would be welcomed with open arms. A young family with a baby fleeing a wicked king. Verse 14 tells us that the family left at night. This is an act of true desperation. Traveling at night is not easy. You don't just turn the headlights on. Finding your way in the dark was not easy. So this was a difficult trip. What does that mean? It means that when the angel's message was completed, Joseph got up and immediately awakened Mary and they, they packed their things and left probably in a matter of minutes. Verse 15 tells us that this event would then lead to the fulfillment of what we read in Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. This describes the return of Jesus after Herod's death. And so Jesus, by the will of God, he escaped the wicked King Herod. The wise men had come and by God's plan given Jesus enough wealth for Joseph and Mary to live on for many months until they could settle back in Nazareth. Now, why was Jesus in danger? What was really behind this? What was the spiritual scene? What was behind the scenes? What was behind the the, the spiritual curtain that we can't see? Later, Revelation tells us precisely who was actually behind the attempted murder of baby Jesus. Revelation 12, verse 4, tells us that Satan, the dragon, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Well, Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. He would undoubtedly learn Joseph's trade as a carpenter, as any eldest son would. Mary would continue to have children. And Jesus would begin his ministry at the age of 30. Luke 3 tells us this. He would faithfully go to the cross to die for the sins of all who would believe on him. For the Jew first and then for the Gentile, according to Romans 1. He would be raised from the dead, demonstrating that the payment for sin to God was complete. It was full. The payment for sin was satisfied. He made propitiation for the wrath of God against sin. And so that escape to Egypt and then being brought out of Egypt becomes very, very important. And without that, Jesus doesn't fulfill his ministry. But why does Matthew quote Hosea 11.1? Because Hosea 11.1 speaks of God saving Israel from Egyptian slavery and miraculously bringing them out through the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army. You know the whole story. Well, that brings us to the second instance of God's divine protection of Christ. And we go back quite a number of years to the date 1446 B.C. That's the date of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. 
Now, we have to take a, a bit of a journey here together to get to this point. I've never believed in the preaching principle that says you have to simplify everything. Yes, we make the Bible as understandable as we can, but it takes effort and it takes thought. So I want to take some time to lay an extensive foundation for us and then get more specific, and I promise we'll get to the second instance in 1446 B.C. of God's divine protection of Christ. I want to lay this foundation. First, I want to give you three general principles to understand about prophecy and then three specific principles to this exact situation. Three general principles to understand. We'll just kind of lay some concrete here for a bit. The first general principle to understand, the New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. The New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. In other words, what Hosea 11.1 meant to the original reader is exactly what it meant when Matthew included it in his inspired gospel. And it's exactly what it means when we read it today. It never changes. There are upwards of 360 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That is about 4.5% of the entire New Testament are just quotes from the Old Testament. Psalms is quoted more than any other book, 79 times. Isaiah is quoted 70 times. Deuteronomy is quoted 50 times. Genesis is quoted 46 times. At least 26 of the 39 Old Testament books are quoted in the New Testament. This cements a very clear connection between the Testaments. And at least 19 of the 27 New Testament books clearly quote the Old Testament. And in most of the remaining eight books, the Old Testament is at least hinted at or alluded to. The New Testament books that quote the Old Testament the most, as far as numbers of times, it's almost a dead heat between Romans 66 times and the Gospel of Matthew 65 times. Now, the book of Hebrews, as far as actual just breadth of content, has the most. But as far as different quotes, 66 in Romans, 65 in Matthew. But that's not all. The New Testament also contains allusions, not illusions, but allusions, references to specific Old Testament texts. Not necessarily direct quotes, but references, citations, and so forth. And these are intended by the New Testament authors to be in, in a short burst of a few words connecting directly to a specific Old Testament passage. For example, both Peter and Paul write of a new heaven and new earth. This is a clear allusion or reference to Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. In fact, allusions to the Old Testament make up an even higher percentage of the Old Testament than straight quotes do, of the New Testament rather than straight quotes do. And if you put the, the quotations together with the allusions and the references, it makes up 10% of the New Testament. That's a massive quantity of our New Testament is actually Old Testament. Now, the big question then is precisely how does the New Testament use the Old Testament in both its quotations and its allusions? In my time as a pastor, and that's not infallible by any stretch, but in my time as a pastor at least, the overwhelming experience I've had is that the average church member, the wonderful Christian trying to live for Christ, trying to make his way through life, living faithfully toward heaven, the average Christian defaults automatically to assuming that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, the meaning is still the same. That what the Old Testament meant when, he, when it was written is still what it means today. Generally, to come out of that belief, you have to have 
high-level theologians explain to you that you were wrong. This is what some theologians call the single-meaning view, that every Old Testament text has a single meaning, and it's always been the same. One of my professors in seminary said that the Bible is always safest in the laps of the church members because church members don't make silly assumptions about the Bible like the Old Testament has changed. In my estimation, that is the default view of the backbone of the church, and that is her members. That What the Old Testament meant 4,000 years ago is exactly what it means now. What, what God said to Abraham 4,000 years ago is what it means now. But there are numerous other views of how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, and this is a hotly debated topic. For example, one popular view holds that the Old Testament has human meanings which the Old Testament author knew about, but that all Old Testament texts have this hidden divine meaning that the Old Testament author could not possibly have known. Now, we would never say that the Old Testament authors knew every single nuance of every text they ever wrote, but never would we say that they just simply blindly wrote something that they actually had no clue what they were writing. Another view says that the New Testament authors used what they call a Jewish hermeneutic, a Jewish Bible study method that allows for reinterpreting Old Testament texts and even altering their meaning to make them metaphorical or even allegorical. Well, the problem with that is that there isn't a Jewish hermeneutic that does that. This is mythological, that there was some sort of different system among the rabbis for interpreting the Old Testament. In fact, when interpretation of the Old Testament did happen, or rather reinterpretation by the enemies of Christ, he always corrected them. He said, no, this is what it meant. And this is what it means. There's another view that says that the New Testament now reinterprets the Old Testament. This is sometimes called New Testament priority over the Old Testament. That the Bible essentially was meant to be read backwards. That you begin with the New Testament and go backwards. That the promises God made to Abraham are now for the church. That the land of Israel now becomes metaphorical. That when God promised Abraham land, he didn't mean actual land, he meant something different. That's fulfilled now spiritually in the church. This method primarily has had impact on eradicating a belief in a coming national restoration of Israel. It's that belief that leads people to say that God is done with Israel forever because the promises in the Old Testament are now reinterpreted away. And what this does is it creates a Bible study system that begins with a theological view and then creates rules for interpreting the Bible from that view. It's exactly backwards. Now, there's a lot of other variations of the above views. I won't take time to go through them, but the only view that contains a consistent Bible study method in which the Old Testament authors meant at the time, uh, what they meant at the time remains the same and isn't somehow changed is what I called the single meaning view. The single meaning view says that the New Testament writers consistently stayed within the context of the Old Testament. They don't spiritualize, they don't find new meanings, they don't find hidden meanings, and they certainly don't reinterpret to change the meanings. There's one meaning, there are multiple implications, but all under the umbrella of one meaning. This also means that the Old Testament authors understood what they wrote, but they didn't understand all the implications and the applications. For example... King David wrote in Psalm 2 of a coming king who would rule the nations. He knew that wasn't him, and he knew it was Messiah. His words confirm this. 
But he didn't know that Jesus would use Psalm 2 to motivate the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 to better obedience to the Lord. He didn't know all the implications, but he did know what the text meant. We can't say that when Moses recorded in Genesis 15, 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. We can't say that the New Testament now changes what God originally meant when he told this to Abraham and changes what Moses wrote when he recorded it. It's an actual land with definable boundaries. The text is very clear about this. And so again, the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament in context. They don't take verses out of the context to reinvent them for a new purpose. And you might see this in blog articles. You might see this even in commentaries all the time saying, we need to determine if this particular New Testament use of the Old Testament is in context or out of context. That's not the question. They're all in context. And so if the New Testament authors are not quoting the Old Testament in context, we have two major problems. The first one is we have two systems of interpreting the Bible, one for the New Testament, one for the Old. And the second major problem is it now opens the door for us to attempt to reinterpret the Old Testament. And now we're off to the races to find all the hidden meanings. And boy, you get five guys in one room who all think they know the hidden meanings and that's a fist fight getting ready to happen. Now, why burden you with all this detail? If you brought a guest to church, I'm sorry today. Like, he doesn't usually do this. This is awful. I burden you with this detail because Hosea 11.1 used in Matthew 2.15 is the most debated case of the New Testament use of the Old Testament out of the other 360 plus. It's at the top of the list. Because here's the question. How can Hosea 11.1, which is clearly talking about the exodus, be fulfilled in Jesus when the Exodus was simply a historical event 1,442 years before the birth of Christ. And we'll get to that, but we have to keep laying this foundation. There's a second general principle to understand. Bible prophecy includes variations. Bible prophecy includes variations, but it never alters or redirects the original meaning of the Old Testament. It never alters or redirects. There's variations. Let me give you just a few variations. There's the direct fulfillment type. Direct fulfillment is, is probably the easiest. Micah 5, verse 2, that the king will be born in Bethlehem. Direct fulfillment. There is partial and completed prophecy. We see this all the time in the Bible. In Luke chapter 4, for example, Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, verses 1, and the first half of verse 2, as being fulfilled in him. But he stopped short. Why? Because the rest of Isaiah 61, verse 2, speaks of the coming rule of Messiah on the earth, and that hasn't happened yet. Partial fulfillment. Another example, in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he quotes Joel chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he says this is fulfilled. But it's only partially fulfilled at Pentecost because the rest of Joel chapter 2 speaks of the coming day of the Lord and the moon being turned to blood and the judgments of God falling on the earth. And that didn't happen at Pentecost. So there's direct fulfillment. There's partial and completed prophecy. There's also what theologians call typology. Typology is is a, a foreshadowing. For example, Abel 
killed by his brother Cain, is shown to be a type, a foreshadowing of Christ in that he was the very first one to suffer for the sake of righteousness. And we, how do we know this? Because the New Testament confirms it in Matthew chapter 23. Hebrews chapter 3 goes to great lengths to explain that Moses was a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And then you have connections or parallels. Direct fulfillment, partial and completed prophecy, typology, connections and parallels. And that's what I want to focus in on. That's the subject of our third general principle. God sovereignly orchestrates historical connections and parallels. God sovereignly orchestrates historical connections and parallels. And I'm going to show you why as we go along here. There are many instances of, of correlations, interconnections to demonstrate that God is sovereignly designing and steering all of redemptive history. In fact, this is seen in the use of the, the Greek word fulfill in Matthew 2.15. The Greek word for fulfill has a, a wide variety of uses depending on the context. It can mean to fill up, to make full, to realize, to bring to realization, to complete, to bring to pass, to accomplish, to consummate. At times, it does refer to a direct uh, completion of an Old Testament prophecy or prediction. In Matthew, four times the term fulfill is used to link Israel's history with events in the life of Christ. There's a greater fulfillment, but with this clear link together. Why does God divinely orchestrate historical connections, these, these interconnections and these parallels? There are no coincidences in Scripture but only divinely orchestrated parallels, and it gives clear evidence of God's sovereign work, God's sovereign movement in redemptive history. Why is this important? To whom is Matthew written? It's written first to the Jew. You want to know something about a Jew? They don't believe in coincidence. And when you don't believe in coincidence, when you see historical parallels, things happening that are exactly alike, literally thousands of years apart, the Jewish reader says, that's not a coincidence because we don't believe in that. Somebody is directing this. This is of God. This is of heaven. This is not of man. And these parallels, these correlations, are meant to bring the reader to faith. And in Matthew's gospel in particular, which is written first to the Jewish believer in Christ, to confirm that what they believed about Christ is true from of old, it is no wonder that Matthew quotes the Old Testament 65 times to give great certainty of their faith. So we have these three important general principles. The New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. Bible prophecy includes several variations, but never alters or redirects the original meaning. And God sovereignly orchestrates historical connections and parallels. Those are the general principles. Let's go to this specific instance. I want to show you three specific principles about this situation. The first one is the one can represent the many. The one can represent the many. Matthew is not explaining Hosea 11.1 1 so much as he's showing a connection, a correlation, a correspondence between Israel and Jesus. The concept of the one representing the many was already understood by the Jews. You didn't have to talk them into this. This is important in Matthew's gospel, which was primarily, again, written to the Jews. And by pointing out to the Jews the, the striking and the amazing parallels between God's movements and workings all throughout history, especially in these key moments like the birth of the Savior, 
this would be very convincing to the Jews. Because again, not believing in coincidence, what they would conclude is that God has woven the threads of redemptive history and the same thread that's sewn into the Exodus goes forward all the way into the birth of Christ and it's connected. So second specific principle. The main connection is the phrase, my son. The main connection is the phrase, my son. The major focus of both Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1 is my son. God calling of his son. This applies both to Israel corporately as a nation and individually to Jesus as a man. Hosea uses singular nouns to describe the whole nation. And this, is, this happens more than once in the Old Testament. Now remember, generally speaking, the Old Testament author knew what they were writing. Maybe not exhaustively, but they had some understanding. In fact, we can prove this even about the author Hosea. Hosea was the son of a prophet. He was well-versed in the word of God. He knew that there was a coming promised one. He knew there was a Messiah. He appears earlier in scripture as one called my son by God. He would have been familiar with 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. He would have been familiar with Psalm 2, 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. He would be familiar with Psalm 89, 27. I will make him the firstborn. He would be familiar with Proverbs 30, verse 4. What is his name and what is his son's name? Speaking of God. Hosea knew this. And the term son carries both the corporate sense and the individual sense. And this goes all the way back, literally, to the very first prophecy of Christ. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed, the offspring. Genesis 3.15 is used both of the collective idea of mankind and the individual idea of one person, the one who would overthrow the serpent, the one who would crush the head of Satan. And there's a third specific principle. Israel is connected to her coming king. Israel is connected to her coming king. The connection between Israel and the coming king of Israel isn't just inferred, it's not just assumed. The connection has already been openly taught in the Old Testament and in blatant ways. For example, in Numbers chapter 23 and 24, we see the oracles of Balaam. Balaam is an interesting study. He's a false prophet. He's an unbeliever that God used to speak truth. And he did it against Balaam's will. I would have loved to have seen this. Balaam was trying to speak curses against Israel. He was hired to do that. And only blessings and power for Israel came out of his mouth. He was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to, to prophesy against Israel, to, to prophesy against him. But every time he opened his mouth, and Balak was not happy about this, Balaam was pronouncing blessings. And he gave several oracles given by God, with God quite literally putting words in his mouth. Now listen to the connection between Israel and Israel's king. In two separate oracles, two separate prophecies that are identical, except one is national and one is individual. Numbers 23, verse 22, God brings them, that's the third person uh, plural pronoun, Israel, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Very clearly speaking of Israel. In Numbers 24, verse 7, in his next oracle, 
Balaam declares that the coming king of Israel, and remember, this is 400 years before Israel even had a king. The coming king of Israel will reign over the most exalted kingdom on earth. And he says this in Numbers 24, 8. God brings him, third person, singular pronoun, the king, out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. Numbers 23 refers to Israel. Numbers 24 refers to Israel's king. And both Israel and Israel's king are being called out of Egypt by God. Clear connection between the corporate and the individual. What is my point? When Hosea wrote, he already knew from Scripture the connection between Israel and her coming king. This information was already available to him. And so when Matthew makes the same connection, he is staying true to exactly the same context in which Hosea wrote. It's exactly the same. And so how does Jesus fulfill Israel's exodus from Egypt? Jesus is the supreme and the ultimate and the fundamental Israelite. He is the ultimate representative of Israel. He's related to Israel. He's descended from Israel. He's contained in Israel before his birth. He's Israel's Messiah who will restore Israel, who will bring blessings to the Gentiles as well. Now I want you to notice the correspondence. In Exodus, Israel was escaping a false king who desired to destroy Israel. In Matthew 2, Jesus is escaping a false king who desires to destroy Jesus, the true king. So why is the Exodus, an event spoken of by Hosea, corresponded to by Matthew, why can the Exodus be called this second instance of divine protection when Jesus wasn't even born yet. The Exodus happened in 1446 B.C., long before the birth of Christ. But again, we connect the one to the many. And to fully explain this, we have to understand how God views the human race. God views the human race in that you are essentially contained in your father's. For example, all of you came from Adam, every one of you. And because of Adam's sin, you have a sin nature. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam all die. Let me get even more specific about how one is contained in his fathers. Hebrews chapter 7 recounts the time that a grateful Abraham who had just rescued his family from the clutches of evil kings, he paid 10% of the spoil of battle to this priest, Melchizedek. But one of the reasons the author of Hebrews says that Levi, the tribe of the Levites, had a right to receive the tithe, the 10%, the 10th, the reason they had a right to receive this is because Levi had already paid a 10th himself to Melchizedek. Now, wait a minute. Levi wasn't even born. His father wasn't even born. His grandfather wasn't even born. How could it be said that Levi gave the tithe? Hebrews 7.10 said, says, He, that is Levi, was still in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. In other words, as far as God was concerned, Levi was there because his great-grandfather was there. One of the purposes of Israel was to be the vehicle by which God brings Messiah to earth. Paul affirms this in Romans 9, 5, to them that is Israel belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. So when Israel was delivered by God from Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea, Christ was being preserved as it were. He was being protected 
by God. As a matter of fact, we know exactly where Messiah was contained, as it were. Look back a page at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashon, or Nashon. Nashon, Nashon, not only had a family, but he was the head of the tribe of Judah at the time of the Exodus. First Chronicles 2.10 calls him the prince of the sons of Judah. Numbers 1, verses 4 and 7, he's listed as the head of the tribe of, of, of Judah right after the Exodus. Nashon carried with him, Nashon carried in him, the very human seed of the one to be born 1,442 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By saving Israel, God saved Nashon. And by saving Nashon, God saved Jesus. Divine protection of the coming king. So you see, Matthew isn't reinterpreting Hosea 11.1. He's not simply finding some coincidental event and, and trying to turn it into a messianic prophecy. He's not saying, oh, that'll preach. I think I'll just write that in there. Instead, Matthew, in his Holy Spirit-inspired text, makes this vital connection between a significant episode in Israel's history and a significant episode in the life of Jesus. Why? To show that Jesus is connected to Israel. Now, the natural question is, who cares? Why is that important? Why is it important for Matthew to connect Jesus to Israel? That brings us to our third instance of divine protection. The connection of Jesus to Israel is important because Jesus is the true representative of Israel who will save and restore her as a nation someday. And I'd like to show this to you in a different text. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, we're going to see the prophetic pre-birth words of the Son of God. Isaiah 49, we'll look at verse 5. This is the Son of God speaking. Isaiah 49, verse 5. So now, says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. The Son of God speaks. He is to be formed in the womb to be the servant of His Father. And this will happen in His ministry and at the cross when the Son of God serves His Father by being the substitutionary payment for all the sins of every person who would ever believe, all in Israel, and then all Gentiles who would believe. But what's the culminating goal of the, the redemptive work of Christ? What's the end result? What's, what's the very thing that Christ is aiming for? To bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, those in the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament camp might say, well, that's actually fulfilled in the church. That when Christ says he brings Jacob back to him, that's actually the church. Look at verse 6. He says, 
It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. Stop right there. What is that saying? God the Father is saying, you, my son, would not receive nearly the glory you deserve by merely saving Israel. He's going to do something else for him. Second half of verse 6. I will also give you as the, as the light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is very specific. The tribes of Jacob is the preservation of Israel. And in addition to, different from, distinct from, I will also make you a light for the goyim, for the nations. Aren't you glad? I am. But what about the third instance of divine protection of Jesus Christ? What is this? At his first coming, Jesus came to offer himself as a propitiation, a a sacrifice for sins that all who would trust in him may be saved from the eternal penalty of their sins. And these saved, if Jews will form the new nation of Israel someday, and if Gentiles will be part of the nations who have seen his light of salvation and who will worship him in the coming millennial kingdom, what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that at his first coming, Satan was continually coming against Jesus at his birth, at the temptation of Christ, Matthew 4, the five recorded times people tried to murder Jesus before he willingly went to the cross. What do we do with that? Revelation 12, 5 says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, what needed to happen with Jesus to preserve him, as it were, for that time? And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the third instance of divine protection. When did that happen? Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 1 records, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, the kingdom's not coming yet. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and the cloud received him out of their sight. Now, by the way, Remember we said that sometimes prophecies are fulfilled in parts. A partial fulfillment with an eventual completed fulfillment. We've already read one partial fulfillment. Let me read you the completed fulfillment. Numbers 24.8, Balaam's prophecy. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. Here's the rest of it. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will gnaw their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. That all who stand against Christ will be crushed at his second coming. Israel was divinely protected so that God would form her into his beloved nation at Mount Sinai. And because Israel carried, as it were, Messiah in the person of Nashon, Jesus was divinely protected from Herod so that he could grow up to carry out the ministry of reconciliation and salvation at the cross and at the resurrection. And Jesus was divinely protected, as it were, in his ascension to heaven so that he could then return, returning to save Israel, to bring his light of salvation to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. Divine protection, divine protection, divine protection. 
But those three instances of divine protection aren't even the most amazing ones. There's one more that blows the others away. Here's the most stunning instance. It's found in Matthew 28. You don't have to turn there. You probably know it. Now after the Sabbath. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he is lying. The psalmist is quoted in Acts 2.27 when speaking for Christ. You will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give up your Holy One to see corruption. Peter says further in Acts 2.25, but since God raised him up again, putting an agony to, into the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, Paul said in Romans 6.9, know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Jesus himself, the resurrected, glorified Christ, said in Revelation 1, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Why should you follow Jesus? Because he has been divinely protected, showing him to be God, truly God. And what does that mean? What does that have to do with you? You should follow Jesus because if he's divinely protected, he can divinely protect you as well. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. By the way, he said, I am the resurrection and the life before he died and was raised from the dead. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, you need a Savior who has been divinely protected over and over and over again because He's the one guaranteeing your divine protection. Because there will be a point in time where your body is failing. And from a human standpoint, all will seem lost. And every one of you, myself included, will face this moment of will I continue to exist Will I be? But suddenly, and at the precise moment that God has ordained from the foundation of the world, you who are in Christ will be absent from the body and you will be at home with the Lord. Why? Because the one who is divinely protected is the one divinely protecting you. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why should you follow Jesus? Because he's the only one who can protect you. He's the only one. He is the only one. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word. These few words out of Egypt, I called my son, are the tip of the iceberg 
of glorious promises of protection for your people. That if all throughout redemptive history you have protected your plan by protecting your Savior, by protecting the the Divine One, the Son of God, when He says, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand, we can believe Him. The One who conquered death, the One who even now is awaiting His Father's orders to return and to conquer the earth that belongs rightly to Him. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl hearing this who is trusting in their own ability to somehow stand before God and make excuses for sin or to say, I've been a pretty decent person or to say, I, I've been all right, I've been pretty good. I pray that they would be slaughtered in their own heart knowing that their so-called good deeds are worthless before you that instead they must have a Savior who stands in the gap between their sin and a holy God. And that Savior, divinely protected all throughout redemptive history, is the only one who is their hope. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Let this be the day when a man or a woman, a boy or a girl in our midst comes to faith in you, drawn by the Spirit of God to the salvation provided by the Son of God and ordained by God the Father. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name, His glorious name. Amen.